Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Dr. Carolyn Missouri, Yale professor, speaking about women's health research at Yale, factoring in gender. I think where I'd like to start today is to say that, as you all know, we are in a time of tremendous growth and development in medicine and in health-related fields. And we turn on the radio, we open the newspaper, every day we hear about a new discovery, a new finding referable to women's health. And this apparent wealth of new information is truly exciting to us because we know that the basis for improving health and improving health care is really finding out new scientific information that can be translated into practice, both professional practice and personal practice. But what we may not know is that such information with regard to women's health really often is news because historically women have not been studied in clinical research. And it's truly amazing how many people in the American public are not aware of the fact that this has really been their tradition. And so if I make mention of history, I want to be mindful of our history as we progress forward and advance and change things. Looking back into the mid-1990s, we find that a review of the literature, a very comprehensive review of the literature at the time, actually said the following, and I want to just read you this quote. Fully two-thirds of all diseases that affect both men and women have been studied exclusively in men. So that was just the mid-1990s. And interestingly, of course, too, when women were included in certain clinical trials, and we certainly were, also the tradition, the history, was not to look at difference between men and women in health outcomes. So for all those reasons, we have a tremendous knowledge gap referable to women's health that we need desperately to remediate. So today, I'd like to talk to you about three things. I would like to talk to you first about why women were excluded from research investigations and what sparked change in that tradition. Secondly, I'd like to focus on what's happening today in women's health research. I think that's really a very, very exciting area and there's much to say. And then finally, I would like to address the question of whether we're generating practical benefit from the research that is being done today, or is it simply a dizzying information maze? You know, take hormones, don't take hormones, take aspirin, don't take aspirin, drink red wine, don't drink red wine, 1,000 milligrams of calcium, no, 1,500 milligrams of calcium, no, you don't need any calcium at all. So that's what I'm talking about, about the information maze. We've all experienced it when we've turned on the radio, turned on the television. So I really want to address that directly and let me say before I go any further, I really would love to have questions from the audience. And I don't really see the need, and you know, what's wonderful about a group this size is we don't have to necessarily wait to the end for questions. So as we're, as we're moving along and I'm talking about these issues, if you have questions or comments, I want to invite you to ask the questions that are on your mind. And hopefully we can have a bit of a discussion throughout this hour. The other issue is, before we start, I just wanted to get some idea. I had the opportunity to just meet a few of you before, but I wonder how many people in the group are actually in healthcare in some form, either as practitioners or as researchers or administrators, quite a, actually quite a number. 
<laughs> what what actually do you do? Healthcare venture capital. Oh, interesting, interesting. And did did you have your hand? Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. I'm sure you could stand here and tell us stories for an hour. <laughs> yes. And I volunteer in the OR waiting room for families at Yale New Haven Hospital. Wonderful. Wonder uh, such an important role. Yes, also. Um, I'm a graduate of the Yale School of Nursing. Oh. I am on the uh, advisory board of the school. Oh, terrific. Wonderful. A couple other hands with her? Yes. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Owen. Yes. Great. Oh, that's terrific. And then for the few people that didn't have their hands up, was, is there anybody in the room who hasn't used the healthcare system? No, I guess not. <laughs> so I guess we're all in this together somehow. Birth counts too, yes. <laughs> Great. So first, I'd like to start with the first question that I'm asking, and that is, a question that would be on everybody's mind, really, why were women not included in any kind of systematic way in clinical trials and clinical research? Why was that the case? Well, the answer is there are three reasons. Uh, the first reason is a very important reason, and that is there has always been concern about exposing women of childbearing potential to experimental risk. And that is a serious concern that we must be serious about today and every day. But the concept of excluding all women from clinical trials for that reason really leaves us without important safety data, efficacy data on treatment, on prevention, and it leaves us with tremendous gaps in our knowledge base. It also leaves us without gender-specific data on response to treatment that can only come about if you start to compare women and men. The second major reason that women have been excluded from clinical trials as study participants really is due to the fact that as women, we bring a certain amount of complexity to the clinical arena as a function of our reproductive cyclicity. And that reproductive cyclicity, whether we're talking about changes over the course of a month or changes over the course of a lifespan, introduce a certain amount of variability that often runs counter to the constancy that is sought in science. We want to see how this variable affects that variable, and we don't like a lot of noise going on in there. So that actually is one of the reasons that women hadn't been included. It was a methodologic reason, but there's an irony in there that I'm sure you all see, and that is if we're so different from men, then how can the treatments that are developed for men work for women? So the third reason why generally women have not been the target of research studies is that there has been, I think generally people agree, a misperception that certain conditions that affect men don't affect women in the same way. And what we're talking about are some classic examples that I think, again, you'll all relate to, like cardiovascular disease, long thought to be primarily a man's illness. And it was thought that even when women have cardiovascular disease, we tend to have it in the same way that men do. 
Well, in fact, now we know that both of those notions are fundamentally untrue. That cardiovascular disease is the greatest cause of mortality for women, as it is for men, and so it affects women dramatically. And also, we now know that when women develop cardiovascular disease, they can often develop it with different presenting symptoms, have a different course, can have a different outcome, and can require different treatments and different prevention strategies. So I think it's really quite important to understand how we're the same and how we're different. I'm reminded of a quote by Henry Kissinger. You may all have heard it. This is not really about women versus men. This is really about joining together to improve health information that is human health information. And what Kissinger said is, besides we never really could have a war of the sexes because there'd be too much fraternization with the enemy. Uh, <laughs> um, and I want to be sure to say that uh, I don't want to in any way single out my colleagues in um, cardiovascular uh, disciplines. This tendency, this tradition to study uh, men rather than women is true across many different fields. And in some fields where women historically have been studied, because the percentage of women with a particular type of disorder is so much higher than it is in men, and I'll give you the example of my own field in the area of depression. I'm actually a professor of psychiatry. I grew up here, I finished, came here to finish my uh, education, and that was just a mere 20 years ago. Uh, I don't know what's kept me, except that it's been a wonderful place to work. But the main area of research and clinical work that I've done over those years has been in the area of depression. And as you may know, the rates of depression, not only in this country, but worldwide, are higher in women than men. Somewhere around puberty, those rates start to change from being about equal to a higher rate in girls, adolescent girls, and then that increase over males is continued throughout life. And so even there, when we're studying depression and women are being included in clinical trials, the tradition has not been to examine difference on the basis of gender. And it is only now, in recent years, that we've started to look at difference on the basis of gender. And of course, as you would imagine, we have, of course, now found difference. Difference in the ways in which symptoms present, differences in the ways in which people respond to certain types of treatments, particularly pharmacotherapies. So I think then this really leads us to the second focus of my comments today, and that really is a focus on what's happening now. That's been our history, is not to include women. We're changing that history. How did that come about? Well, it came about because in science there was an increasing realization by the late 1980s that there was a significant lack of information that was much needed. And through grassroots advocacy, going to legislators and asking for help on this issue, the National Institutes of Health has reversed this situation in our country. And let me tell you briefly how that came about. As a function of women scientists and other advocates being concerned about what was happening, individuals went and banded together and went to the US Congress, and they specifically went to the caucus for the Congressional Caucus for Women's Issues, sought out the caucus to talk to them about what was happening. And it was decided that 
one way to remedy this was really to tie the inclusion of women in clinical trials to the reauthorization of funding for the National Institutes of Health. Because the National Institutes of Health is the single largest funder of biomedical research, not only in this country, but in the world. And if the NIH says you have to include women in clinical trials, that's going to be very important, actually, in terms of people applying for monies there. You can't apply for money to the NIH unless you're including women. And it's also important symbolically because people turn to the NIH as the gold standard in methodology and science. So there's another interesting story that would take about an hour to tell you about how all this came about. But eventually it did come about, and there was a bill signed in 1993, which was called the 1993 NIH Revitalization Act. It was signed by President Clinton in June of 1993. And within that law, there is a provision called the clinical equity provision that requires that all of us from all over the country, as we write our grants to the NIH, again, the largest funder of biomedical research, as we write our grants, for clinical trials that we're doing, we must now talk about how we're going to include women in those trials. So that has really made an enormous difference. However, in order to garner these very important funds, these NIH funds, in order to do research, you have to show feasibility data. You have to show that there's a likelihood that what you're proposing is going to succeed, that you can do the experiment or you can do the study that you're proposing. And here we were in trouble because of the tradition that I told you about, because of the history, because there were no feasibility data to speak of on women. And so here the pipeline was really lean. And something had to be done to begin to change that, to generate feasibility data so that people could begin to look for external funding of a significant amount to really make changes in what they were studying. And so Yale responded to that need. And in 1998, as Harvey mentioned, we formed Women's Health Research at Yale. This program was formed, actually, as a function of private philanthropy. It was a foundation here in Connecticut called the Donahue Foundation. Some of you from the area may be familiar with it. It's a terrific foundation that has funded medical research. And they provided us with a significant award so that we could begin our program. And essential to our program was this notion of how we were going to offer competitively to Yale researchers the opportunity to study something new, innovative, and important in women's health. And so it was in 1998 that we received our grant. We were well aware of the fact that we needed to move quickly. This was a major issue in our country. And so we put out what was called request for applications. There was a two-month turnaround time. Everybody was required to fill out a very sophisticated application that looks like exactly what you'd have to fill out for the National Institutes of Health. And with that two-month turnaround, we got 80 full applications on topic areas ranging from osteoporosis to breast cancer to infertility to autoimmune diseases to depression to domestic violence to areas that people were interested in knowing about, and there just was no basic information to lead them forward. So in that first year, in 1998, we formed a very strict study section where we review the grants, and we're pretty tough on everybody. And we funded as many of the grants as we could with the money that we had. 
And every year since, we have had the same situation. People coming to us with wonderful ideas, providing as many feasibility grants as possible. And now, eight years later, since 98, we've provided $3.9 million of pilot funds to these investigators that we funded. With that money, they have done their studies, some of which are definitive studies, some of which are pilot studies. With the pilot studies, they have now obtained $26 million of external funding that goes into their own laboratories and clinical research settings. And why did we design it that way? We designed it that way to change the fabric of what was being studied in those areas. If the money just came back to the program, we would always be the place where people said, oh, women's health is over there. We wanted women's health to become part of what everybody was thinking about. We didn't want investigators to necessarily identify themselves as women's health investigators. We wanted them to stay as surgery investigators and endocrinologic investigators and reproductive health investigators, but we wanted them to really be thinking about gender and gender difference. I've often been told that if a man designed the program, the money would have come back to me. But in any event, I didn't design it that way because I really did want people to start to change the way they were doing things. And of course, when you have that kind of money to facilitate your laboratory and clinical setting, that is actually what we have found has happened. So it's been an exciting ride at this point and fundamental to the entire effort are two key concepts that I'd like to tell you about. First, we are broadening the scope of what is considered women's health because, as Dr. Kleiman mentioned, so fundamental to women's health is reproductive health. But we believe that despite its importance, it is not all of women's health. So all of the topic areas that I've already mentioned and many more are what we consider women's health, cardiovascular disease, depression, osteoporosis, autoimmune disease. Autoimmune diseases are more common, all autoimmune diseases are more common in women than men. Why? Lupus is a particular autoimmune disease that we're very interested in, we're studying. Nine times more common in women than men, particularly African-American women. We don't know why, but there's a clue there. It's not an obstacle, it's an opportunity. It's a real clue to understand why there's a gender difference. The second thing that we think is really important in the work that we're doing is to inculcate into the fabric of our work this notion of practical benefit. Because I think that it's absolutely key to recognize that we don't do science for science's sake anymore. We do science to create a product. We do science to make a difference in people's lives. And so much a part of what I think the public gets to see looks like we're just doing experiments that we think are interesting and may show up something of value, but it's not the case. We're really trying to experience what we see clinically and bring it back to settings where we can understand it better to make a difference in clinical settings. So, so much of what we're focusing on in our own research program, really, is to uh, think about the practical benefit of what we do. So, just to give you some examples now in our own work, we're definitely interested in reproductive health. It's key to women. We know this. It's key to us. And so we're studying mechanisms for remediating infertility. We're studying vascular risk in pregnancy. We're studying gene therapies for ovarian cancer, an area that desperately needs our attention. But we also study, as I mentioned, lupus. We study the mechanisms for maintaining bone 
And why do, we, why do we choose these particular areas? Well, for one thing, if you look at bone, it's been estimated now that by the year 2020, one in two Americans over the age of 50 will be at risk for bone fracture. These aren't areas that are esoteric, arcane areas. These are areas that are very important that we have to pursue. We're looking at gender differences in diabetes. Diabetes dramatically increases the risk for heart disease, and it's often unrecognized in women. New ways to enhance heart health for both women and men. The genetics of breast cancer. Estrogen's effects on memory. I'm sure nobody can relate to that. that <laughs> this is why when I give a talk anymore, I don't say there are three things I'm going to say. I usually say there are a few things I'm going to say, and then I try to remember as many of them as I can. Sex-specific effects on stress and cognition. Gender differences in the treatment of addictive behaviors. Addictive behaviors is a particularly fascinating area. Because the prevalence of addiction in this country has been higher in men than women, it stands as a very good example of a discipline in which women were essentially unstudied. And when you apply the treatments and the prevention strategies within addiction to women, they just don't work as well. And now we're beginning to change that, and we're finding out a lot more about addiction. And it's known none too soon because in a recent national survey that was a very comprehensive survey done by SAMHSA and well done, what we're finding is rates of drug use are increasing in females. And that's really a very unfortunate trend, and it's particularly increasing in our adolescent girls. If you look at the percentage of adolescent girls in this country that smoke compared to adolescent boys, what you find is the trend has stabilized for boys, but it's still going up for adolescent girls. What you also find is the same thing, the same pattern with alcohol. More girls are drinking. Boys are stabilizing in that regard. Girls are going up. We need to do something about that now. We can't wait. We're studying domestic violence. Domestic violence, many people don't realize, is such an important issue because if you look at the greatest cause of women presenting to the emergency room for an injury-related complaint, it is a function of domestic violence. We also study depression, as I mentioned, in its many forms, and many, many other things. So that goes to the point of trying to broaden the scope of what is women's health. Now to the point of practical benefit. With regard to the issue of generating practical benefit, I want to give you just a few brief examples. We now know that women have increased sensitivity to stimulant drugs, such as nicotine. And what that means is, from the time of exposure to the drug to the time of addiction to the drug, is shorter for women than it is for men. We don't yet know why that's the case, but if you think about the practical benefit aspect of it, you realize that it becomes even more important to enlist young women in prevention programs, to never get started smoking. We also now know that the same lifetime exposure to cigarettes for men and women results in higher rates of cancer for women, and specifically lung cancer. And death rates from smoking-related diseases are rising for women, yet, as I mentioned, the rates of smoking in girls is going up. One in four girls in this country under the age of 18 now smokes. One in four girls. Since 1987, 
More women have died from lung cancer than breast cancer. In part, that's because we've gotten better at treating, lung can at treating breast cancer. But that is not to say that the rates of breast cancer are not of great concern. The estimates from the NCI are that approximately one in eight women in the United States will get breast cancer in our lifetime. Very important disease that we must continue to pursue. And there isn't one form of breast cancer. There are many forms of breast cancer. And we must go after that and understand that better. We now know that as a function of our work, and I'm mainly focusing on the work that's come from our program, that risk for breast cancer increases with age. And again, I'm not sure that most people really think about that. But it emphasizes the importance of continued examination and mammograms into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and yes, 90s. You must continue to be vigilant in that regard. And it's important in that regard to consider that we've also learned much more about the genetics of breast cancer, namely how the so-called BRCA1, BRCA2 genes are risk factors for breast cancer. In our own work here at Yale through our program, we've also shown that if women have those particular gene mutations, they're also at increased risk for recurrence of breast cancer. Why is that so important? It's so important when women are trying to decide what their treatment options are if they've been diagnosed, to give them the most information that they can get in order to make good decisions about their care. We also study alternative treatments. I hadn't mentioned those yet, and I think it's important to do that. As you probably know, it's largely women in this country that use alternative and herbal treatments as well as different types of alternative therapies. We've begun to study those in a couple different places. One of the places we've begun to study it is with regard to breast cancer. It had come to our attention that many women who are in the waiting room waiting for their, with breast cancer, waiting for their treatment, are talking about their hot flashes. Now, all these women have been taking off, taken off estrogen because they have breast cancer, and these poor women are also suffering at the same time from hot flashes. How are they managing that? Well, here they're all talking about how they're using this herb, black cohosh. How many people have heard of black cohosh? It's, yes, it's ad, you can buy it in the CVS, in health food stores. It's all over the place. And in fact, there's probably a, a value to some aspect of black cohosh. But the problem is it's an over-the-counter, non-regulated agent. So we don't know enough about what it really does. So here are these women with breast cancer who are taking black cohosh, not telling their physicians. Their physicians are not asking. And so the question becomes, does black cohosh have any effect on breast cancer? And so we had an investigator who studied tumor biology come to us and say, and compete, and, and was awarded a grant. But basically what she said is, I looked in the literature, and there wasn't a single article on black cohosh and estrogen-dependent or estrogen-independent cells. And yet these women are all taking this agent. So we funded her, she did the study, and she found that, in fact, if you're taking black cohosh, depending on the particular chemotherapy regimen, it can either increase the toxicity of the regimen or it can decrease the efficacy of the regimen. This has never been known before. It's never been shown before. We also now know that women are more vulnerable to the detrimental effects of stress with accompanying brain changes and that females show these changes for longer periods of time. 
That's also consistent with the data that's arising across the nation about how women, when women are exposed to trauma, they're more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder than are men. And these are in civilian populations. We now know that women do not com complete very important, critically important aftercare cardiac rehabilitation programs after they have heart attack at the same rates that, as do men. And it was not really understood why. What was, uh, what was uncovered by our program was that in many instances the referrals were less common to women than men. When that was corrected, then the next problem was when women went to cardiac rehab, they felt it was an environment in which they didn't feel comfortable. And so what we did was fund a study looking at whether or not if you added to usual care stress and relaxation techniques for these women, would they complete at greater rates? And in fact, the answer was yes, because they were seeking out different types of rehab than just lifting weights and being on a treadmill. And in fact, when these women completed rehab, they got the same benefit as did men. So this is just a, a short list, a snapshot. And again, I want to encourage us to, to stop, and I will stop in a minute so that you can ask questions about the topics that are on your mind. But this is a short snapshot, short list of useful discoveries that have come directly out of the program and out of programs that are dedicated to women's health. So then I'd just like to go to my third and final point, which is given the progress we have made, which I think is absolutely astounding in the few years we've been underway, and I often think of it as eight years we've been in business 3,000 days. <laughs> so we've, got, we've accomplished a lot in 3,000 days. But nonetheless, given the progress we've made, given the progress made nationally, why is it that when you read about research results, they often seem so confusing? They even seem sometimes to conflict with themselves. The science is reversing itself. And as I said, are we really deriving practical benefit from research, or is this just some type of dizzying information maze? Well, I think there is practical benefit. I think there's dramatic practical benefit. But I think there are at least, again, three reasons why it often appears as though science is contradicting itself. First of all, I think that it's important to realize that there are new studies all the time. And new studies are using more sophisticated methods. And with more sophisticated methods, we can get better results. And so there's a refinement in what was previously told to you as a healthcare consumer. I believe that clinicians and practitioners give you the best information they can give you at the time. But if a physician told you 10 years ago to take estrogen because it was going to be cardioprotective, it was because at that time the available data suggested that was true. We now know that that's not true. But how do we know that's true? We only now know that's true because there's been a major study within the Women's Health Initiative, which is actually a series of studies, looking at this experimentally and finding out that women who are on hormone therapy do not have a decreased rate of cardiovascular incidence. In fact, they have a slightly elevated rate. But once again, if you look back, you find that the data everyone was going on 
were the data available at that time which said the following. When do rates of heart attack tend to go up in women in older decades when estrogen is decreasing? And what do we know happens to women who have hysterectomies and there's in surgically induced menopause? Their rates of heart attack go up. And what do we know happens to peripheral markers of cardiovascular health like cholesterol if you add estrogen? They get better. So there were a lot of observational pieces of information that would suggest that hormone therapy was good for your heart. But until you did a systematic experimental study actually comparing women on or off estrogen, you don't know whether or not it actually was cardioprotective, and this study showed that it was not. The second major reason why I think research findings appear confusing is because from any research study, you are, you are looking at a particular group of individuals. And oftentimes, I think, we'll read about a study and we'll think it applies to us without looking carefully at the subjects of the study. If we don't look like the subjects of the study, then the study results probably don't apply to us. So if only men are studied, it may not extend, the results may not extend to women. If only those who are in the acute form of a particular kind of illness are studied, the results may not apply to someone who has a chronic form of the illness. It's very important to know that when you read about a particular condition in the newspaper or you hear about it on the television, that the results may be correct, but they may not necessarily apply to you. Furthermore, for any group of individuals being studied, a result is always expressed in science in terms of an average outcome. So it's like a rule of thumb, but it doesn't mean that everybody in the group will have the same outcome. So it may indicate, the results of a study may indicate a particular kind of outcome. You may fit the profile of those people being studied, but still, you may be one of those individuals for whom the average outcome doesn't apply. And the third major reason why research results, I think, can appear confusing is that scientists don't spend enough time explaining them to the general public. And I think that we are not taught to do that, and it's not been part of our background. And I think, too, a program like ours is really trying to change that. We have a terrific commitment to the community, and we spend a lot of time in the community talking to people about our studies and about our work. And the individual scientists go out and talk and ask questions as well as give presentations. And it's an enlightening experience for us. And it also, I think, allows the public in general to understand more about what we're doing and not just follow the banner headlines. Because you know when you read these studies, like the most recent Women's Health Initiative study that looked at uh, high-fat diets, and they compared high-fat and low-fat diets in these in this, you know, tens of thousands of women. And overall, in this large group of individuals, there didn't appear to be an outcome difference between people who had low-fat and high-fat diets. I was actually driving home one day on the radio, I turned on the radio and the disc jockey says, well, I knew I could eat those cheeseburgers all along. It doesn't make any difference what I eat. Well, in fact, that's really not accurate at all. Um, what is the case in that particular study was at the time that study was designed, 
people were not as informed about the differences between trans fats and polyunsaturated fats. These women weren't asked to, to decrease certain types of fats. They were just asked to decrease the fat in their diet. And so some of these studies were done at a time when we didn't have the sophistication that we have now. And I think that's the other reason why it's important for scientists to be out talking about their work and informing people about what they're trying to do. I think that it's very important uh, for us to really understand, too, that within these large, large trials, like the Women's Health Initiative, it was important that they be done in this broad, sweeping way because the prescription at the time was a broad, sweeping prescription. If you think back to the estrogen example, it was by the late 1990s, there was an extraordinary number of women in this country who was taking estrogen. There was something like, um, oh gee, 90,000 prescriptions written a year for estrogen. It was the largest selling drug in the country. And so the study really tried to replicate the way in which it was being used to understand if it should be used in this broad-based way. So I see that I'm getting a, a high sign that we have about five, 10 minutes left. And I wanted to tell you a little bit more about some of the studies we're, we're doing and the, the, um, the examples that we're giving. I, um, I think that I'd like to conclude with a couple things and then really open it to questions and hopefully a, a brief discussion. But to say that um, there's so much more that we need to do. And when you think about what those things are, they fall into different kinds of categories. We need to understand more about the causes, the mechanisms, the treatments for conditions that are unique to women, of which there are many. Cervical cancer, ovarian cancer come to mind as two examples, but there's endometriosis, there's cardiovascular risk in pregnancy, there's postpartum disorders. We need to understand more about conditions that are more prevalent in women's lives, such as depression, migraine, breast cancer, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's disease, and a host of autoimmune disorders. And we need to re remember the importance of chronic health care giving, and which is much more common in women and men. And, and what, what would be the outcome for all of these women that are doing so much of the typical caregiver within this country? Uh, we've looked at the data on that. And the typical caregiver in this country is a woman who is also working outside the home, who, by the way, provides an estimated $150 billion in unpaid care annually. This is an enormous segment of our population and their health costs related to that effort and to that work. We also need to focus on conditions that can manifest differently in women and men. I mentioned cardiovascular disease, also addictive disorders, and there are others as well like pain syndromes. We need to tackle disease-producing conditions that are increasing in women, HIV exposure, increased smoking, workplace stress, issues related to poverty. And we need to know more about best practices so that we can promote health for women, both physical health and mental health. So truly, I see this as an exciting time in our lives, in our ability to generate new knowledge. I think that by studying women and by studying gender difference, we add to the entire bolus of information available to in improve human health. And that's really the goal here, is to improve human health 
Certainly by improving the lives of women, we believe we'll improve the lives of the whole society, but certainly we'll also be generating information that will help all. Dr. Carolyn Missouri is a professor of psychiatry and psychology, associate dean for faculty affairs at Yale School of Medicine, and director of women's health research at Yale University, the largest interdisciplinary women's health research program in the country. This was recorded at the Yale Tomorrow campaign launch on September 30, 2006.